Now, many shrug their shoulders today and say, well, what about this death of this man called Jesus? There were many thousands that were crucified under the Roman regime. They were persecuted. They were put to death for all kinds of events. Sometimes it was just sheer madness, sometimes because they were criminals, sometimes because they were disloyal to the Roman authority. And there were streets and streets lined with crosses, with poor victims suffering and dying. What's the big deal about this death of one particular person? And what has it got to do with us today, 2,000 years later? Well, it was not the end of the story. Because we know, of course, that the Lord Jesus rose again from the dead, and that many, many people believed on him, including the most unlikely. Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Golliher, and it is a great privilege to bring to you the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus today. Matthew chapter 27, 54 is our text today, and the message will be the supernatural events around the cross. We read here in Matthew 27 that the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which were slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Jesus and Joses, and the mother of the Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Now, it's a great thing that we have the message of the cross, the message of redemption by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. But today we're interested in the evidences that surrounded the supernatural death of the Lord Jesus. Because if Jesus died an ordinary death, then we really have no gospel. But if it was a supernatural death, and if during that death God worked supernatural events, then we have a glorious message that saves our souls. Now, you may need to go to the book of Romans to get the doctrine of the cross, but we start here with the history of it and how those who were even putting him to death began to realize that truly this was the Son of God. So please stay tuned with us as we move now to the pulpit ministry of our Free Presbyterian Church here in Cloverdale as we let the Bible speak on evidences of the supernatural death of our Lord Jesus. Oh, I just fled from me, 
Last week we looked at these soldiers sitting around the cross. And in the verse 36 of this verse 27 in Matthew's gospel, uh, we noted that sitting down, they watched him there. And you can only imagine the things that they saw. And we sought by every means we could to try and take in the, the sight of the suffering Savior and the things that they observed. Well, now we're going to observe them. And we're going to watch these Roman soldiers and the effects of the cross upon them. And we're going to jump to verse 54 in Matthew 27, where it says, Now when the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And so you can see that something got to them. Something mightily changed them. We noticed prior that they were sitting around the cross, very casual, very carnal, very thoughtless, very cruel. They hadn't a thought for the one who was in agony uh, in that middle cross right before them. Sitting down, they watched him there, and we know that they were also involved in some gambling game with a dice, gambling for the very garments of the Lord Jesus. Now, many shrug their shoulders today and say, well, what about this death of this man called Jesus? There were many thousands that were crucified under the Roman regime. They were uh, persecuted. They were put to death for all kinds of events. Sometimes it was just sheer madness, sometimes because they were criminals, sometimes because they were disloyal to the Roman authority. And there were streets and streets lined with crosses, with poor victims suffering and dying. What's the big deal about this death of one particular person? And what has it got to do with us today, 2,000 years later? Well, it was not the end of the story. Because we know, of course, that the Lord Jesus rose again from the dead, and that many, many people believed on him, including the most unlikely. And the most unlikely was the centurion, the chief Roman, who was given the mandate to put the Lord Jesus to death. He was a hardened, cruel Roman soldier, a professional soldier, and yet by the time that our Lord Jesus had laid down his life on that cross, what was his statement? Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, again, we want the facts. And I cannot call you to discipleship or to be a follower of the Lord Jesus and to make him your Savior unless you know the facts. And we want to look at the facts, the evidences, that convinced this Roman centurion and the others that were with him that truly this was the Son of God. This was a supernatural event. Now, there were four things that marked and surrounded the death of the Lord Jesus that make it supernatural. 
There was the darkness. We spoke a little about that last week. There was the rending of the veil in the temple. There was the earthquake, where the very rocks split open. And then there were the graves that opened. And after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, saints, believers, came out of those graves and walked into Jerusalem. So you can't say that this was, not, this was an ordinary event. These things mightily signaled that this was supernatural. Verse 45, we'll firstly look at the witness of the darkness. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that's noontime, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. That would be 3 p.m. And here is this tremendous darkness that came down as thick as the darkness upon Egypt when the judgment of God was upon Pharaoh. Now, this was not an eclipse. There is an occasional a phenomenon that can happen in the world where the, the sun is blotted out uh, and it cannot shine upon the earth. But at Passover, there is a full moon, and it cannot possibly equate to an eclipse. You'll see here that it was local all over Judea. This was not some passing cloud or meteorite or any other object that for a short while uh, blotted out the light of the sun. This was a darkness that was all over Judea. It was even observed from as far away as Egypt, and many comments were recorded at that very time. The other thing is that it was at noontime, right when the sun is at its hottest, at its brightest, most observable, and right at that time, it was blotted out by the power of God. Now, a Roman astronomer, uh, this is corroborative evidence. We certainly believe the Bible. We believe that this uh, event is true because the Bible states it. But there is corroborative evidence that agrees. There was a, a Roman astronomer uh, who, speaking in the 14th year of Tiberius, which is the exact same year as the Lord's death on the cross. And here's what he said, that the greatest eclipse of the sun that was ever known happened then. For the day was so turned into night that the stars appeared. Now, how much darkness does it take to study the stars? Those who are into astronomy, they want to get away out into uh, the wilderness where there are no city lights, where there's no reflection uh, upon uh, whatever is in the, the atmosphere, and uh, they want to get a way out into the wilderness that they can observe the stars in true darkness. Because where we're living right now at nighttime is not true darkness, so much light around us. Can you imagine the darkness that was required in Judea that they would even see the stars? Now, the meaning of this event, we do, are not left to speculate because it was at that very time that our Lord Jesus cried out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? And this three-hour darkness is undoubtedly the work, the supernatural work of God the Father as he attends the death of the Lord Jesus. And the Bible is filled with information about this work that took place between the Father and the Son. And I sought to describe last week that the first three hours, nine to noon, were the three hours of man's emphasis on the cross. What man did to the Lord Jesus in nailing him there and causing him to die. But in the latter three hours, noon to 3 p.m., these hours of darkness, this was now the mighty work of God. And it was during this time that our Lord Jesus was our sin-bearer before the Father, and God the Father judged his Son. Now, this is so wonderful, and it's so simple, that the best thing to do is just to read what the Bible says on this. Let's read firstly Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Now, remember, we're, we're, we're trying to get a, a little window into the transaction between God the Father and God the Son. These are the hours of darkness at Calvary when man is shut out, and God's at work. God is forsaking his Son. Jesus has cried out uh, toward the end of that period, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And here now is the prophet Isaiah writing many years before the event, and he says in verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. Smitten of God. Can you, can you grasp that? God smiting his own son. Another prophet talks about the father's sword. Now, these are not literal terms with physical weapons, but this is a spiritual activity of God punishing his son, smiting him, slaying him, as Zechariah would put it. Now, if we read on a moment here in Isaiah, uh, we see that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of, of our peace was laid upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, you would say, but that's what man did. It was man who kneeled him, that whipped him, that uh, crushed him there on the cross. Well, go down to verse 10 in Isaiah 53, and notice this, yet it pleased the Father to bruise him. Now, this is totally beyond our human comprehension. Just as that darkness that shrouded the whole scene of Judea and Calvary in those hours, God the Father punishing his Son, it says it pleased the Father to bruise him. Somehow, and I don't pretend to understand all this, somehow God the Father received pleasure in the suffering of his Son. Now, please do not get it in your mind that, that God is some monster that takes delight in uh, suffering and pain. 
there is a much higher purpose. The higher purpose, of course, is the whole plan of redemption, that Jesus becomes the sin-bearer, God the Father punishes the Son, and we go free. Redemption is purchased for God's people. Now, if there was no plan of redemption, if there was no church in view, no people that would be saved, this would all be an absolute travesty in mere cruelty. But we know that God planned the cross to save our souls. God prepared a body for his son that he would go to the cross. And here we read in the scriptures that it pleased the Father to bruise him. Now let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 8, 32. Romans 8, verse 32. And it says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And here is the word, spared not his own son. Now you would understand the word spare means to go leniently. If someone says, spare the rod, it would mean either to not use it or to use it very gently, very lightly. Now, when the father punished his son, he did not spare him. He did not hold back the punishment. He insisted that his son, our Savior, endured all the wrath, all the punishment, all the pain, all the suffering required in our redemption. And of course, it was infinite. And what transpired between God the Father and God the Son was justice, divine justice, infinite justice, because one sin demands eternal hell. And so you could safely say that there on the cross during those three hours between the Father and the Son, the eternal sufferings of hell were absorbed, received, endured by our Savior, that we would endure none and never see hell. Hallelujah. What a salvation. What redemption. Now, in that uh, Romans 8 and verse 32, you'll see here it says, He delivered him up for us all. Wonderful. Redemption, full and free. God the Father spared not the Son that he would spare us. Now, can you think of the person who dies without the Savior? What will hell be like for the person who dies without the Savior? What will eternity in hellfire be like where God will spare not and the whole punishment of sin will fall upon his people? Now, I've been reading a book by Herman Hoeksema, and I've been reading some, of the, some excerpts of it on our radio broadcast, and I want to give you just a little excerpt of his very close theological writing on the meaning 
of Jesus' death during these hours of suffering at the hand of God. Let me read this to you. In the hour of judgment, the Son of Man suffers the agonies of hell in utter desolation. And because this Son of Man, even in this darkest hour of his suffering, is still obedient and still bears the terrible wrath of God voluntarily, and because this Son of Man is also the eternal Son of God, who is able to taste the depth of eternal death in a moment. Therefore, eternities of desolation are pressed into that one moment of his agony. That wrath of God is fully borne by him, the justice of God is satisfied, the darkness passes, and presently he rises out of the depths victoriously and announces, it is finished. Now, I hope you get the whole gist of what uh, Herman Hoeksma is saying there. In a, in a moment, all the infinite, eternal agonies of hell compressed and led upon the person of the Lord Jesus, born by him, because he was God in the flesh. And that's why we always insist that he was a mediator that was God in the flesh. He was the God-man. He was not just human. He was not just the best of men. He was not just the wisest of men, but he was the eternal second person of the Trinity in human form, enduring the wrath, the justice of God, and he bore it away in that one act of death. Now, have you believed in this work of atonement? This is the Christian's boast. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do glory. This is our boast. This is the good news that we want to tell the world about. And I'm glad you're here today that I may share with you that there is one who on the cross bore every one of your sins. And if you come to him as a sinner and you come with all your guilt and all the shame and all the debt of your sin and you say, Lord, I need to be saved, I need to be delivered from wrath, this one has all the infinite power and worth to save you. What a witness it was in all the land born by the testimony of this darkness.
this is Ian Golliher. I appreciate this opportunity just to call on you and to speak to you about your own need of a Savior. I want to encourage you to get a copy of our booklet, A New Beginning. It's free of charge. You can have one copy or more for your friends. And it is a vital message because it lays out in heading form and verse by verse why we need a Savior, who the true Savior is, and how you may receive Christ as your Savior. This is vitally important. It is not enough to know about Jesus. You must call upon him to be your Savior. And, of course, the Bible leaves no room for error. We cannot afford to be less clear on this answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? If you're asking that question, here is God's answer in simple terms. Most people have little conception of the hatefulness of their sin in the sight of God. And that is why we've taken such pains to emphasize this point already. Only when you see your need will you be willing to apply God's remedy. And, of course, the steps that are outlined here, and I'm giving you the headings, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he alone is able to save. Accept and act upon the promises of the gospel, not upon man, but upon the promises. And then you make confession of sin to the Lord. That is absolutely necessary. And then trust in the merits of Christ, the work of Christ alone, that again is absolutely necessary. So here is this little booklet, A New Beginning, and I'd love to send it to you free of charge. Give us a call, send us an email, go to our website. You'll get all the details coming up now in these announcements. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.ltbs.ca. CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the home page of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one -on -one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187-9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway 
on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m. here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Speak.